Good evening. I debated where there's nobody right in the front pew is kind of moving back that way, but then I decided that not everybody needed to see me that close on the live stream. So uh, speaking of the live stream, for those of you that may be watching tonight, tonight is the second part of a three-part series, and this morning there was no live stream. But if you would like to go back and review that sermon at some point, as it is kind of foundational for this one, this morning's sermon audio is posted at www.godswordistruth.org. So you can at least listen to the contents of this morning's sermon on there if you were not able to be with us this morning. This morning, we began a little three-part sermon mini-series on fasting. And we took a look primarily this morning, fasting in the Old Testament. And we discussed one of the reasons, perhaps you may seldom if ever have heard a sermon on fasting, is because of the sad misconception that it is only a Jewish custom, that it was only something that the Jews were commanded to do or that the Jews had any use for doing that has nothing to do with the New Testament, the New Testament church, or New Testament Christians today. However, that's not the case. As we discussed this morning, fasting is something that our Lord Jesus Christ actually taught on more than he did baptism, or that he did communion, two essentials of our faith. We talked this morning about how in the New Testament, fasting is taught more than confession, which again is, is essential to our salvation. So as we're gonna see tonight, even though Moses and the Israelites and David and Elijah, and Nehemiah and Esther, even Daniel in the Old Testament all fasted, so too did Anna, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and the New Testament church in the New Testament as we're going to see. This morning, just to bring everybody up to speed, we also learned that <clears throat> although fasting was only commanded once, it was commanded once under the Mosaic law to take place on the Day of Atonement, fasting was actually done by the Jews much more often than that voluntarily. Why? Well, because by thus humbling themselves, by afflicting their souls, which is another term as we looked at this morning that, that is synonymous with fasting in the Old Testament, by thus afflicting their souls, fasting, giving up, earthly wants and needs or desires in order to more intensely focus upon God and his will. That was a way of showing him how serious they were. That's why they fasted, because they wanted to show him how serious they were, as we saw this morning, in times when they were faced with overwhelming fear or danger. We saw that they also did this as they fasted in preparation for or in times of war. We saw how they fasted during times of deep personal sorrow, such as when loved ones were sick or dying. We also noted from the Old Testament this morning how they fasted in times 
when they were seeking, seriously, intensely seeking God's forgiveness, when they were truly, truly remorseful, genuinely sorry for their sins and in repentance, we saw that they also fasted when seeking God's will. And so, having learned all of that this morning, tonight, we want to take a look at fasting in the New Testament and see how fasting carried forward. There are three key areas that we are going to cover tonight as we work our way through a number of New Testament texts. And yes, fasting is in the New Testament. <laughs> as we work our way through those, we're going to be talking about fasting in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to secondly be talking about fasting in the life and ministry of Saul of Tarsus, that is the Apostle Paul. And thirdly, we're going to take a look at some texts on fasting in the life and ministry of the Lord's one New Testament for a century church. And the reason we're going to do this is because it is vital to our understanding and it is vital to our developing a, a better and more well-informed answer to the question that we're going to ask for next Sunday morning sermon, which is, when and how should or do New Testament Christians fast today? Should, is it something we should even be doing? If so, why so? When, how, and all of those things. So as we continue to set the stage for that sermon, I want to look at our first text and point tonight. In the earliest stages of Jesus' life on earth, we see faithful and fasting Anna. In Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, which says, Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of different ways that commentators have looked at this passage. They have said, well, she was married for seven years and her husband died, and therefore she's a widow about 84 years old. Others have said, well, she was married and her husband died after about seven years and she was a widow from that point on, another 84. To me, that makes the most sense because it tells us later that um, she was of great age or it tells us there that she was of great age a little earlier. So if it was going to tell us she's actually 84 years old, then it wouldn't have to tell us she was of great age. So my thought, just my opinion, is that, that she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. He died and uh, she'd been a widow for 84 years, if that's the case and they got married 15, 18, 20, then this woman is of a great age and she's somewhere around 100 years old. But either way, that's not really the point to try to decipher exactly what her age was. The thing is that she had served God with fastings and prayers night and day. This was a very faithful woman. Imagine, imagine being married for seven years, then becoming a, a widow, losing your husband, and spending the rest of your life, decades, decades, just serving God as she did. Where'd she get her strength? 
I want to suggest to you that part of her strength, part of her faithfulness was in, as, as this text highlights, she served God with fastings and prayers night and day, did not depart from the temple. She lived her life serving God thereabouts in the temple. You see, fasting was not an inconvenience for her, but an act of worship. It was an act of intensely seeking God that was rewarded with the strength of God. It rewarded her, it made her the servant that she was. And one of the things that I love about Anna, coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She was one of the few that recognized him for who he was. She was one of the few that had the eyes of the Lord that she recognized Jesus Christ. You will you'll recall that, that that night at the inn there was no room and, and, and so Mary and Joseph had to go out there basically in the stable, if you will. And, and I imagine later on, what would, I, what would I think if I thought, wow, I was in there and the Lord was born. But you see, people didn't recognize that. They're just more travelers. But Anna was one of those who actually saw the Lord. But her strength and her serving came from her prayer and fasting. That's an early example during the life of Jesus. But in Jesus' own personal life, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. Just after his baptism, and just prior to the beginning of his public ministry, between his baptism in Matthew 3 and the beginning of his public ministry, right in the middle before the ministry begins, Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And as we know, while he was there, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Scripture tells us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The Bible tells us that he fasted during that time. But here's something that we sometimes tend to forget or maybe skip right over. We think, well, Jesus was really tempted by Satan those three times, hard, and he was. But there's something that we forget. Jesus was not only tempted three times at the conclusion of that 40 days and 40 nights, but Jesus was tempted throughout that entire 40-day period, period. You know how we know that? Because Scripture tells us that in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Luke's account, he fills in one of those, those details that Matthew doesn't, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. See, it wasn't just three times at the conclusion, it was all during that time. And in those days he ate nothing, Matthew says he fasted, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread, and that's where Matthew picks up the account. Matthew only tells us about the three at the end of the 40 days, but Luke says that he was tempted for 40 days. Brethren, for 40 days, our Lord was relentlessly tempted, and for that same 40 days, he relentlessly fasted. I do not believe that's a coincidence. Not for a moment. If he is being relentlessly tempted by Satan, he cannot afford to fail. We know the Bible says he never sinned. He could not afford to sin because it, it one sin and, and the whole plan falls apart. 
He was tempted in all things as we are. How do you think he got through those 40 days? Jesus was human. I realize he was God in the flesh. He was 100% God. But I also understand that he was the son of man. That he was made just like his brethren in all things. Hebrews 2. How do you think Jesus survived 40 days one-on-one -on -one with Satan? I am telling you that it is no coincidence that the Bible says that he was fasting for those 40 days. Was it about food? It was about him and God in a fight against Satan. It was about him who was God in a fight with Satan. And brethren, I gotta tell you, we often make note of the fact that Jesus answered Satan with an it is written in his three temptations at the end of his 40-day ordeal. We often focus on that, but we seldom ever mention the fact, if we ever even noticed, that it was his single-minded, single-hearted, full and undivided, focused, fasting-induced attention on seeking God that got him through those 40 days and nights of relentless tempting before he ever got to the final three. Scripture tells us that. So here's my point. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, found it necessary to be strengthened, found it necessary to focus intensely on God through fasting, because temptation in the devil was just hitting him so hard, if Jesus needed that, surely we do. Does that make sense? If Jesus needed the kind of strength that fasting and a full attention on God with no earthly distractions gave him in order to win his battle, how can we possibly think that we don't need that kind of strength at times too when we are faced with similar circumstances? Just a thought. Not only did our Lord practice fasting, he preached it. He preached what he practiced and he practiced what he preached. We would note this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we made mention of this text this morning. And the first thing that I'd like for us to notice tonight as we really dig into this text is that God honoring fasting, the kind of fasting that God honors, is a very humble, very personal, very private, just between you and God kind of thing. Personal. We would also notice how this is backed up by the fact that in the context here in Matthew chapter 6, if we were to read the rest of the chapter or what comes before it, Jesus aligns that kind of private fasting with private prayer in verses 5 through 15 and private giving of alms in verses 1 through 4. You remember verses 1 through 4? Jesus said, when you give alms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Keep it a private thing between you and God. Don't stand there and announce your good works. 
And Jesus goes on in verses 5 through 15, say, hey, it's the same way with prayer. Don't stand out there on the street corner and show everybody how great to pray. Go in your, go in your room, close the door. And, you, and the Father who uh, sees you do this in secret, he, he will reward you. And, and then it flows right into the context, or right in the context, it, it flows into fast things to be the same way. It's a private thing between you and God. And the fact is, when we look at it that way, and we look at the point Jesus is making, the message is clear that God takes pleasure in an action on behalf of the one who fasts that way. Matter of fact, as again we mentioned this morning in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we see Pharisee and the publican, we see this Pharisee who's so proud of the fact that he's got to announce to everybody what a great guy he is because he fasts twice a week amongst other things and, and this other poor sinner looked up to heaven and, and said, you know, God, I'm, I'm just not worthy. Or he wouldn't look up to heaven. He said, I'm, I'm not worthy. And what did Jesus say? I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the guy who was so proud of his twice a week fasting. Bad paraphrase, you can look it up, okay? Second thing that we would notice, and you probably already did because I underlined it, interesting. Jesus did not say in this text, but if, and if you fast. He did not say the second time, but if you fast. But Jesus said, when you fast. There is zero indication that Jesus did not expect his disciples to fast. It is a foregone conclusion, according to this text, according to our Lord, that he expected his disciples to fast. When you do it, not if you do it, when you do it. And, and we would see this again, it's not just here in, in Matthew's account, we would see this again, this when you fast, this, this expectation that yes, they were going to, it's, it's just something that, that they would do. We'd notice this again in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Parallel account in Luke 5, 33 through 35, but we will just take a look at Mark's in Mark 2, 18 through 20. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And, and Jesus said to them, this is interesting, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Not then if they do, but then when they do. In this text, Jesus points out the fact to his disciples that they would be expected to fast. But the interesting part is, is he also points out there's a time to do it and there's a time not to. I think, I think that's key. There's the appropriate time to fast. And, that, and that's why we're talking about some of these examples from the Old Testament and we're looking at when they did and, and some of these examples from the New Testament. This is a a deep, sincere, intense seeking of God, putting all earthly needs, wants, and desires aside. This is a, an intense, focused time on God. And, and Jesus is, is letting us know that there's, there's times that's appropriate, okay? But in their case, at least here, it wouldn't be. He says, right now, my disciples don't have to. And, and you look at that and you say, well, why? And that's kind of what he was asked. Why does everybody else's disciples, but yours don't? And, and Jesus said, basically, because I'm with them. Do you remember what the point of fasting was? The point of fasting was to seek God, to seek God's will, to grow closer to God, to seek his help. 
Jesus basically said in this text, my disciples don't need to because I'm right here with them. They don't need to seek me, I'm here. They don't need to, to, to try to find out what the will of God is because I am the will of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am doing God's will. He said they don't need to, to seek the, with intensity God. It can't get any more intense than it is because God's standing right in the midst of them. That's Jesus' point. But he said there's going to come a time when I'm not right with them and then, then they will need to do that. They will need to seek God more intensely. Now, as I said, this text would seem to indicate to us that there is an appropriate time to fast and one that maybe isn't. Fasting was to definitely have a place in the life of his disciples, but only when properly done, Matthew 16, 16 through, uh, Matthew 6, 16 through 18, and only when truly warranted, as we learn here. I should not go fasting for some trivial, Lord, I really want that new coat. There's things that it's just not appropriate. There's things that, that are and there are things that aren't. And, and Jesus kind of makes that point here. However, those disciples, like us sometimes, didn't seem to always know how to fast, when to fast, or what a spiritually empowering weapon that fasting was against Satan and his forces. They didn't always seem to know how to use it, when to do it. We find this out in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, but in Mark 9, 14 through 29, you will recall that is the account of where Jesus comes down and there's the man there whose son's got this demon and the, the disciples couldn't get rid of it. And Jesus gets rid of it, and what does he say? He says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. They didn't understand their need for the intensely seeking God and to do battle against Satan and his forces. That is also the case where the man said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as you will recall. And I, and I would encourage you to read that again in Mark 9, 14 through 29. It's, it's just another account that emphasizes how important prayer and fasting is for ultimate success against Satan and his forces. So next I'd like for us to move on to fasting in the life and ministry of Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. As we noted this morning, fasting or putting aside even earthly needs like food, putting aside earthly things including eating in an all-out effort to pursue God and his forgiveness, at least in these cases, was something that Moses did, was something that Ahab did, was something the Israelites did, it was something that the Ninevites did. They all did it, all four of those that I just mentioned did it when they came face to face with their own grievous sin or the great sins of others and, and in their great sorrow and in their great remorse and in their, in their great and sincere repentance they set out to seek God and tell him how sorry they were with everything they had and, and earthly food and all of that just had to wait. It wasn't important because they were so focused on seeking God's grace and forgiveness. And as we consider Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, we see Saul of Tarsus doing the same thing, as I mentioned this morning, whether intentional or not. Now, as we look at that, 
Technically, he fasted. He was without food and water for three days. Scripture says so, Acts 9, 1 through 9, okay? I don't know that it was necessarily him saying, I think I'll go fast. I don't believe in the context we see that. As one good brother this morning pointed out, sometimes when you are absolutely heartbroken, you are just so filled with remorse or grief, food means nothing to you. You lose your appetite. We can get so sick over our circumstances and our sorrows that we lose our appetite. And in Saul of Tarsus, most likely, that was the situation. He, was so, he had killed people. And Jesus on the road said, I'm Jesus whom you persecuting. Now listen, folks, if that wouldn't make you sick to your stomach, you need to read it again. So Saul in seeking God's forgiveness is, is earthly stuff don't matter. The food don't matter. The water don't matter. The, 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 the letters from the leaders in Damascus don't matter. Paul, Saul of Tarsus is, is just sitting there and he's praying and he's pouring his heart out and he's intensely focused upon God. He is sincerely, sincerely, sincerely remorseful and sorrowful and repentant. And he's seeking to find God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And as I said this morning, that's why when Ananias comes along and offers him God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in the form of baptism, Saul of Tarsus, he says, and immediately he arose and was baptized because that's what he'd been looking for. That's what he'd been fasting for. That's what he'd been begging God for for three days. That's what he'd been looking at, the mess in his life and, and his guilt and what he had done, the blood on his hands. But fasting intentionally was so important to the Apostle Paul, consider this, something you might not have thought of. Fasting was apparently so important to the Apostle Paul that fasting eventually became one of the defining marks of Paul's ministry. Did you know that? If I had asked you before this series of sermons, hey, tell me one of the defining marks of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Tell me something that, in a word, defined Paul's ministry. You might have said, well, grace. Paul used the word grace, charis, more than any other, I think 170 times, I think, in the New Testament, Paul might have been that. You might have said, well, his, his shipwrecks, that defined his ministry, that he was willing to go that far. You might have said all these things, but, but you probably wouldn't have said, I'll tell you what defined his ministry, fasting. But you know something? The Apostle Paul said, that was one of the defining marks of his ministry. That was that important to him. Let me, let me take you through the text here and, and show you where this is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. He's going to tell you how they commend themselves as ministers of God. In much patience, in tribulations. Yeah, that was a trademark of, of Paul's apostleship of his ministry. In needs, in distresses, in stripes in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. That was a mark of Paul's ministry. It became a defining mark of his ministry. In fact, so much so that he not only tells us that once, he tells us that twice. In 2 Corinthians 11, Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verses 23 and 27, where Paul's listing all of the things that he's gone through. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. 
in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul said, this is a defining mark of my ministry for Christ. This is what I've gone through. This is, this is part of the, the sufferings and the struggles. This is part of what I am because of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to point out something here that, that we should note in our Bibles in verse 27. Something maybe if you're studying with somebody, I'm going to chase a rabbit a little bit here, but something that you need to know. In verse 27 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, and the New King James Version says this. In hunger and thirst, in fastings often. However, in at least one of the newer translations, it's worded a little bit differently. In hunger and thirst, often without food. Now, while that may be technically true, it's also misleading. The problem with this particular translation and those who follow its thought is that it is not logical. Why would Paul say, I'm in hunger, and the reason is, I don't have any food. <laughs> if Paul says, I'm hungry, he doesn't have to tell you, and the reason is, I have no food. Why are people hungry? They're hungry because they have no food. It's a foregone conclusion, okay? This doesn't mention fasting. You might, maybe this is the idea where people, some people get the idea, well, fasting isn't mentioned that much in the New Testament. It's translations like this, okay? Paul would not say, I'm in hunger, and it's because I'm without food. That's an obvious thing. It is far more apparent that the King James, the New King James, and the American Standard Version have the proper translation in showing that the Apostle Paul was commenting on an additional verifying mark of his ministry, and that is not only was he hungering and thirsting at times, but he was also fasting a lot. It wasn't he's hungering and thirsting because he has no food. I'm in hunger and thirst physically, but I'm also spiritually seeking God. I'm fasting a lot was the defining mark of his ministry. So <clears throat> make sure that you understand, and if you're ever studying with anybody, Paul's talking about two different things here. He's talking about a physical hunger and thirst as well as fasting. Remember what we said this morning? Biblical fasting is always for a spiritual reason. It's not to lose weight. It's not for anything other than spiritually intensely putting aside all other wants, needs, and desires to seek God. It's not because you don't have any food. <clears throat> sort of like when you go for procedure. A lot of procedures, a lot of tests. In the morning you have to fast. You can't have your coffee. If you're like me, that's not a good thing. Uh, you can't have food. You can't have coffee. You have to go have this test. Well, it's not because you don't have any food in your cupboards. It's not because you don't have coffee in your pot. It's because there's a specific reason you're fasting. You, you have to do it for this medical thing, not because you don't have any food. Same thing here. Fasting is for a spiritual reason. Thirdly and finally, <clears throat> let us take a look at fasting in the life and ministry of the Lord's one New Testament first century church. And yes, you heard me correctly. The Lord's New Testament first century church practiced fasting at times. First off, we're going to take a look at fasting in the congregation at Antioch. 
where the disciples were first called Christians. We know the text in Acts 11:26, where it tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, one of the three New Testament texts that, that mentions the word Christians. But it was that same church that also fasted. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What's interesting here in this text is that as these church leaders, at the very least, probably the whole congregation, but at the very least, these church leaders were worshiping and fasting. I mean, I don't think it was like the five of them alone in the worship service, but while they were worshiping and fasting, the Lord made his will clear. And then they fasted and prayed some more before they sent Paul and Barnabas off on their missionary journey. They were seeking to know what they should do. They were seeking to make sure they had it right. They're fasting, they're praying, they're focused on God. They're not eating, they're not worried about, we gotta get out of church at noontime because we got fellowship dinner today. They're not worried about that. What they are worried about is that they're doing the will of God. They wanna send, they, they wanna do the right thing. They wanna send Barnabas and Saul to this work. They wanna bless them in the work. So they're not worried about lunch. They're not worried about, about you know, beating the denominationalists to the restaurant for noontime. They're not they're not worried about all those things. They're just not focused on them. They are praying. They are fasting. They are intensely seeking God's grace, God's, God's direction, what God's will is in this case. And this was the first century church. And so there's a couple of things that we learned from this. Number one, fasting was something that the first century church did in preparation for ministry. Hmm. Hmm. We're going to send these men out. And so they prayed and they fasted. They were showing God how serious they were about doing his will. They did it in preparation for ministry. You can see where some of this is going for next Sunday, right? Also, we learn from this text that fasting can be done congregationally as well as individually. Or there, if it wasn't the whole congregation, it was at least these leaders in the, in the context. It can be done not just as an individual, but it can be done by a group of individuals, a group within the church, or even the church itself, the congregation itself, for a common reason. They all fasting. Do we all pray together? The people lead us in prayer. We have people we want to see healed. We pray together. We pray as one, right? Well, you can fast as one in a congregation as well, all of those who can do that. Next, I want to turn our attention to the first century congregations of the Church of Christ in the Galatian region. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Let me stop right there. Love this, love this text. I gotta bring this up. I can't get by this text without bringing this up. You've heard it before, but I love this. Paul was just stoned in this area a few days previous. He was left for dead. We read that just a little ways before this. 
And so then he, he gets up and he leaves the place where he's stoning and, and, and then a day or two or three, just a little while later, he comes right back in that same place again and he goes in and he preaches, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've got the Apostle Paul coming into your congregation, he's all bruised up, he's still black and blue from the stoning, he's limping in because he's been hit with rocks here. I mean, they stoned him, left him for dead. They did quite a number. And he comes in and he says, brethren, let me tell you, through many tribulations, that's how we enter the kingdom. Would he be believable? The man was a walking illustration. He'd be believable. And so that's what they taught. And then when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. And yes, I read that twice for emphasis. As Paul and Barnabas went through the region of Galatia, as they appointed elders in every church, that was done in conjunction with prayer and fasting. The, new, the first century church, just like we're the first century church, it was done in conjunction with prayer and fasting. The key here is to notice that it was done in every church as they appointed elders. It was not a one-time thing. Some things we see in the Bible are, are like a, a one-time thing that, that happened, like in James 5 when we were talking about James and the elders with the, with the miraculous gifts and the oil, and, and we talked about how some of that stuff that connected to the miraculous gifts is, is not for us today, and we're talking about why on Wednesday nights. But notice that this was not a one-time exclusive situation. This was done in every church, every congregation. And when you remember what fasting is for, to intensely focus on God and his will and his guidance and what he wants for you, it makes sense to fast appointing elders, doesn't it? I mean, it made sense to them. They did it. And here's the thing, key thing. Notice that the Galatian region was not primarily Jewish. And what that has to do with this study is this wasn't this fasting wasn't just a practice in Jewish converted areas. This was also something done in Gentile converted areas where they were predominantly Gentiles. It wasn't just a Jewish custom. This was a first century Church of Christ normal practice in times of sincerely seeking to know and to do the will of God even in, in areas that were, had as many Gentiles becomes very obvious as we begin to look into the topic of fasting as we have today that both the Old and New Testaments have a lot to say about a subject that we seldom ever mention. Many of the great heroes of the faith, men and women from both Testaments, including even the Lord Jesus Christ himself and congregations of his first century church at times fasted. They fasted for various and very appropriate reasons. I hope the things that we have studied today will be things that you'll truly think about and, and maybe meditate upon them between now and next Sunday as we prepare to biblically address the question, should I? as a New Testament child of the living God, or, or should we as a New Testament congregation of the Lord's church, should we fast? And if so, then when and what exactly 
does and might that entail? I will leave that for next Sunday as we apply the things that we have learned today. Tonight, if you're not a member of that church, the Lord has told us very specifically in the Bible, and when I talk about the church, I'm talking about the people that are saved. You see, that's what ecclesia means. It means the called out. It's those who've been called out of a wrong relationship with God and into a right relationship with God. When I say at the end of these lessons, are you a member of the church? I don't mean, are you just a member of the group that worships here? Are you, not, are you just a member of the group that comes in Sunday? That's not what I'm talking about. When I say, are you a member of the church? What I'm saying is, are you one of the saved people? Are you a member of the group that has been saved by virtue of your being immersed in the water that represents the blood of Jesus to have your sins washed away. So tonight, let me say it again. Are you a member of that church slashed group of saved that belongs to Jesus Christ? That's why it's called the Church of Christ. It is the saved of Christ's. Because the plan in the Bible is very clear. You must study and believe God's word, Romans 10 and verse 17. You must, you must believe it. You've got to trust or have faith in Jesus, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And there are, other, there are other texts that we could use, but this is what it boils down to. You've got to be willing to repent, that is, turn to God. Do a U-turn. Turn to God. Turn your life over to God. Say, I'm going to serve God from now on. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect or flawless. It means you're just going to live different and live for God. You're going to live according to what Jesus the Lord said. You're going to live according to what God's word says. You've got to be willing to confess Jesus as Lord. You've got to be willing to say, I'm a Christian. Yes, I do believe in Jesus. Yes, he is my Lord. And you've got to be willing to say that more than just when you're baptized. You've got to be willing to confess him. And you must obey the gospel, Romans 6, 3 through 5. You've got to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Otherwise, you don't have forgiveness of sins. That's not Doug being mean. That's Doug being scriptural. That's what it says. And you must live a faithful life Tonight, if you have not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins to become part of that saved group, or if you have been, but you're struggling, you're struggling to be the Christian you ought to be, we'll pray for you, we'll help, we'll study with you, anything that you need to help you to be closer to God. If you have a need, we come to the front right now as we stand and sing.